You're listening to Earth Matters, produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the Kulin Nation and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. We're bringing you environmental and social justice stories. I'm Corey Green. On today's show, we're talking about phytoplankton. Phytoplankton are small organisms that drift around in all aquatic environments. They are important because they create about half to 85% of the world's oxygen and they are the basis of aquatic food chains. We talked to Dr John Beardle and Dr Martina Malerba of Monash University about their research into phytoplankton. We'll start with Dr John Beardle, who is telling us a little bit about what they are. Phytoplankton is a sort of a generic term for a huge range of microscopic algae, uh, including the cyanobacteria, which actually, as the name suggests, bacteria. They used to be called blue-green algae, but uh, strictly speaking, they're, they're photosynthetic bacteria. And um, these inhabit the world's oceans and uh, also many or most of the freshwater uh, systems around the world. And phytoplankton are interesting because they photosynthesize like a plant, but then they can also move like an animal. Is that right? Well, not all of them move. A lot of them are uh, sessile and they'll just drift freely in in, in the water column. Um, Some of them do have the ability to move. They will... um, uh, they, they have flagella, which they can wave to sort of drive themselves through, through the water. So that's like a, a whip tail, isn't it? That's like, yeah, that, it, exactly. And, and, and it just pushes them through, through the water. Um, others will glide. Some of the datums will, will, will have a gliding movement. Um, so some of them are motile, but I, I would say the majority of them just drift in the water and are moved around by water movements and, and currents and, and other circulation. I asked Dr. Martino Malerba to describe their size. Ah, they vary uh, over many, many order of magnitude. Uh, the smaller, the smaller species will be around one micrometer in diameter, and the biggest one would be, I don't know, uh, almost a millimeter. So we're talking about what six order of magnitude, if not more. And so why are phytoplankton an important part of the ecosystem? Oh, well, um, I mean, I've worked on phytoplankton for the last 40 years and, and looked at their, their physiology in relation to environment. They're a fascinating group of, of organisms. They're hugely diverse. In, so you get all sorts of shapes and colors and sizes and, and so on. Um, but they're also hugely important globally. They, they fix half of the carbon dioxide that is... is uh, assimilated in the carbon cycle every year. Put it another way, every second breath that you breathe in um, contains oxygen that derives from algal photosynthesis. So without the algae, um, carbon cycles, production of oxygen and, and so on would be very, very much reduced. And they also participate in a whole range of nutrient cycling and, and and such like as well, which just keeps ecosystems um, functional. Can you explain nutrient cycling, please? Oh, okay. So in in nutrient cycling, for example, um, phytoplankton will take up um, carbon, but they'll also take up nitrogen. They'll take up phosphorus and other elements from the environment. 
Um, when they die, they all settle out into the, um, the sediments um, where they're, they're broken down by bacteria and then those nutrients are then released um, for the whole process to continue. Um, in some cases, they're eaten by um, protozoa, others who are plankton in the water column and digested and again, the nutrients get recycled. So the, the, the phytoplankton is a very important component of that whole cycling process. And am I right in thinking that phytoplankton can turn inorganic nutrients into organic nutrients? Well, that's exactly right. That's, that's the basis of, of photosynthesis. You're taking the energy of sunlight and inorganic material like carbon dioxide or um, dissolved inorganic nitrogen, nitrate or ammonia and inorganic phosphate, and you're turning them into uh, organic compounds, i.e. Into, into phytoplankton. And of course, that then, that organic matter then gets transferred up food chains and keeps um, aquatic food chains going. The phytoplankton are the basis of many of the um, food chains that we see in the oceans and, and fresh waters. Basically, the productivity of an environment, which uh, includes all the animals living on, on, on a place, is dictated by how much photosynthesis you have going on because uh, they all directly or indirectly feed upon photosynthetic organisms. And so having lots of phytoplankton means that you can support a, a bigger food chain on top of you. And so, and so that's why, for example, in the uh, Antarctic and Arctic region, in, uh, in summertime, you have lots of light, lots of nutrients, and you often have a lot of uh, uh, phytoplankton. You have what is called like phytoplankton blooms. So you have lots of photosynthesis going on, and therefore the amount of energy that is created through light uh, can support um, like a myriad of different things, uh, such as, I don't know, for example, like whale migrations is directly related to phytoplankton blooms. So they're quite important. So to summarize, phytoplankton are very important. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. With with. Uh Without, without phytoplankton, the world's ecosystems would be a very different place. Dr Malerba from Monash University talks about how climate change is affecting their numbers. So, well, climate change with the increase in, in, in temperature has a major impact on phytoplankton. Uh, there are quite strong evidence pointing out at, um, uh, the, the, the mean size of phytoplankton species changing with increasing temperature. Like as we warm up the planet, then we have more smaller species compared to larger ones. Because, um, well, the explanation comes down to, to energy utilization. As you increase temperature, you have faster chemical reactions within organisms, and that leads to um, cells that basically grow faster and uh, they reproduce sooner, which means that their size overall will decre decrease in time. This is Dr. John Beadle from Monash University. I was um, reading a press release from NASA. Uh, the press release was from 2015, and they said that they had um, noticed between 1998 and 2012 a 1% reduction in phytoplankton in the ocean per year. Have you um, had a look at that issue? Uh, well, the, the, the consequences of global climate change are, are sort of very complex. But one of the things that is we're, we're pretty certain about 
is that what you will get in the the open ocean at least is um, because of the heating of the surface layers of the ocean you'll get an intense or intensification of stratification so you get a a warm less dense layer of water sitting on the top and that is then separate from a cooler layer of water which is denser underneath it now the problem is most of the nutrients are in the cool dense layers the ones in the top layer um, are uh, utilized very very quickly by the phytoplankton and they become rapidly um, uh, depleted of nutrients and that's that's what seems to be happening. And, of course, phytoplankton can only live in that top uh, layer where there's sunlight, right? Absolutely. That's, that, that, that's exactly right. So there has to be enough sunlight. So they're living there where there's plenty of light but few nutrients. All the nutrients are underneath, um, or the majority of the nutrients are underneath, to be exact. And, um, of course, what this is doing is it means that the, um, the phytoplankton are rapidly becoming nutrient-limited, and the production and biomass is going down. And the other consequence of that is, of course, that has an uh, implication for the carbon cycle because normally what would happen is that the phytoplankton would grow to a, a, um, a reasonable biomass and then that would sink down into the deep ocean and be locked up in deep ocean sediments in something... Um, called the biological CO2 pump. And that's critical to the maintaining the sort of levels of CO2 in the atmosphere because the ocean is a big sink. So if one component of that biological carbon pump is reduced because of the intensification of the stratification in the, in the open ocean, um, the oceans are not going to be as good in the future at scavenging and, and absorbing this CO2 that humankind is, is pumping out into the atmosphere. Does ocean acidification affect phytoplankton? Uh, well, it certainly affects um, quite, a, quite a lot of them. Um, we've, a, a number of people across the world have been looking at this. There are some phytoplankton called coccolithophores that make a calcium, have calcium carbonate scales on the outside. Um, and... There's a great deal of debate about how ocean acidification, which comes about from the high CO2 in the atmosphere, dissolving in the water and forming carbonic acid. Um, and that, of course, will prevent the formation of carbonates or make it harder for the cells to make carbonates. And there's been a great deal of debate about um, what that does in terms of carbonate production, but also what it does in terms of the ability of the cells to make organic matter as well. Um, and certainly the, the carbonates are, um, or carbonate formation is, is inhibited by the acidification. And this affects other things as well that, that will eat phytoplankton. So, um, you know, there's, there's a group of um, uh, predators around the world that are also live in, in shells and they will um, predate phytoplankton as well. So you're, you, you can disturb that side of the, the food chain as well. Um, but then there are other effects as well. Um, 
ocean acidification seems to affect the nutritional quality of the phytoplankton. They change their, um, their fatty acid composition, their lipid composition, and to make them um, apparently less nutritious. And that has been shown quite nicely by colleagues in a number of labs around the world that that is carried on to the zooplankton that are eating the phytoplankton. So they become affected as well. They become um, less fecund. They don't produce as many offspring, for example, and they have delayed reproduction and re delayed development. So these effects are not just at the level of the phytoplankton, but are also uh, occurring further up the food chain. You're listening to Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories. On today's show, we're talking about phytoplankton, which are small but very important organisms present in aquatic environments. This is Dr. Martino Malerba from Monash University, talking about how pollution affects phytoplankton. Mm -hmm. uh, with pollution, well, with pollution, uh, right, so with pollution we have two things going on. We have uh, um, a decrease in phytoplankton because of toxic waste that we release in the ocean. And so you can imagine, I don't know, near near big cities, you tend to have uh, like pH that changes very rapidly and therefore you're going to have higher mortality in phytoplankton communities. But at the same time, we also have uh, situations where because of um, release of uh, fertilizers from agriculture or wastewater from, uh, um, I don't know, like uh, near, near cities or um, these impacts instead increase the amount of nutrients in the water, and that leads to often leads to algal blooms that are triggered by human activities. Often these algal blooms can also be toxic, so there are, uh, there are species that can synthesize toxic compounds, and when they bloom, you have high mortalities among fish, among um, like um, other invertebrates in the ocean. And, so, and that um, is really bad. When you say algal blooms, you're talking about the phytoplankton themselves um, yeah. reproducing in very large numbers? Exactly. So when nutrients go out of control, when there is an uh, excess amount of nutrients, then the algae, the, the phytoplankton, they, they divide very quickly and, uh, and they upset the usual balance in the system. So the invertebrates or the grazers, those that usually consume phytoplankton, are overwhelmed by how much phytoplankton is created. And, and, and this creates um, an imbalance um, that leads to well, no, the ocean turning red, like the common red tides that, that we see every once in a while. And the, the, smell, the smelly uh, estuaries, often those are due to algal blooms that eventually saturate the environment and they start to rot away and they create uh, um, environments with very low oxygen and fish die because of that. But phytoplankton produce oxygen, so why is it um, making the environment low oxygen? Right, that, that's a good question. So the, the phytoplankton produce oxygen when you have light, but at the same time they consume oxygen in the dark. So there are two things going on. Uh, in the dark, they start to suck up all the oxygen because of respiration, and that lowers oxygen in the environment, as well as when you have lots of algae, they form a dense mat on the surface of the ocean, which means that underneath you're going to have very low light penetrating through. 
And so this leads to algae dying, like phytoplankton dying, and as cells die at, and, and sink down the water column, the decomposition takes place and that also consumes oxygen. So overall, you're going to have a decrease in oxygen as cells die and, or cells respire in the dark. So this problem of algal blooms has come up quite a lot. The Murray-Darling, for example, has had an algal bloom in 2007, 2009, 2010 mm-hmm. and 2016. What's causing the increase? Yeah, so as I said, um, most, I mean, some algal blooms are part of nature. There are cyclics and it's because of, um, I don't know, like tropical rains or because of uh, uh, seasonal changes in temperature. There are, in some circumstances, algal blooms are totally normal. In others, instead, it's, um, it's because of an upset that comes from uh, usually like human activities. And the two most important ones are um, agriculture and uh, farming. So agriculture is because uh, to, to grow more plants, we, we put a lot of fertilizer. And fertilizer comprises of mostly uh, nitrogen and phosphorus. There are those inorganic nutrients that most often limit the rate at which phytoplankton divides. So as we release, as, as fertilizers uh, uh, leaks in the water from, um, uh, from like fields with, with rain and irrigation, then the response is usually that the leftover fertilizers is taken up by phytoplankton and all of a sudden they start dividing out of control. So in layman's terms, there's more food, so they breed more? Exactly. exactly. Yeah, as, as simple as that. And usually what limits the rate at which phytoplankton breeds is nitrogen or phosphorus. Not always. Sometimes it's also iron or sulfur or other stuff. But most, most, in most cases, it's nitrogen and phosphorus. This is Dr. John Beardle from Monash University. So how common are these kind of events? Oh, um in in some places very common i mean if you, you can just have to think of in terms of freshwater blooms um there's been a history in the gippsland lakes over the last oh, 20 years i suppose of recurrent very very intense blooms of um cyanobacteria or blue green algae like nodularia um uh, we have a whole range of um, more localized um, blooms of, of red tides across the world. Um, I used to, at one stage in my, my life, um, I was in working in a lab in North America, and um, there would frequently be red tide alerts there um, where the level of these dinoflagellates, as they're called, a type of, of, of alga that are quite toxic, or some of them are, um, and uh, quite often those shellfish industries would have to be closed down until we could verify that um, they, were, they were safe to eat. So, yes, they, they do occur quite frequently, and, of course, they occur very frequently in areas where there is a great deal of, of pollution. And how would a big project like the Adani coal mine in Queensland affect phytoplankton numbers? Well, apart from the fact that um, if you're taking a fossil carbon reserve and burning it off and producing a hell of a lot more CO2 and therefore, thereby exacerbating global warming, ocean acidification and the like, 
Um, there is also the possibility that um, you know when you're moving all of this this stuff up and taking it away on on ships and and, and the like, you're going to uh, influence um, uh, turbidity and, and light capture by phytoplankton in the um, in, in coastal waters with all this shipping activity. Um, my main concern about Adani is the fact that um, why do we need to burn off more coal and release yet more CO2 in the atmosphere? We ought to be doing everything we possibly can to reduce CO2 levels in the atmosphere, reduce global warming, reduce ocean acidification, all, all of the effects that those things have on, on phytoplankton. Would the dredging be a problem? Yeah, dredging is, dredging is certainly a problem because, of course, it affects turbidity. Um, it affects, therefore, light um, transfer through the water column for the phytoplankton so they don't get enough light. Um, potentially, if the sediments that are being dredged contain toxicants, um, those toxicants might be released into the, um, into the water column as well instead of being trapped in the sediment. This is Dr. Martino Malerba. Mining in general has uh, lots of consequences on the environment. Like, it, it's such um, a destructive activity that it has repercussions on pretty much everything that goes on around it. Um, I mean, uh, one of the main issues is that increasing nutrients makes it very hard for corals to survive as a result of having lots of algae going around and uh, competing with corals. So by increasing nutrients, you tend to have two things going on. First of all, you have uh, more phytoplankton and, and therefore competing for light with corals. And uh, at the same time, you also have a situation where um, settling of corals is, well, the area where corals usually settle is taken up by not phytoplankton, but mostly macroalgae, like uh, they're the equivalent of phytoplankton, just larger. I asked Dr. John Beadle what we should do to protect phytoplankton. Uh, look, certainly there have been a number of efforts around the world. Um, you know, historically there was a lot of, used to be a lot of problems with um, fertilizers and overuse of fertilizers, and that was causing eutrophication in a lot of inland waters. This has also been the case in the, uh, the Gippsland Lakes, but there's been a lot of work done towards um, reducing those loads, um, and this has certainly had, had big effects in, in Canada, for example. There's the effects of um, pollution of inland waterways is, are, are much reduced. Um, uh, the same is true of the, of the Gippsland Lakes. Um, the problems there are... are certainly better or or less marked than they were. Um, What we can do to protect phytoplankton, yes, is is certainly reduce runoff from from land, excess use of fertilizers. Um, Don't use waterways as dumping grounds for inconvenient pollutants, um, including toxicants as well as the, the, the nutrients that lead to eutrophication. By eutrophication, he means algal blooms. Um... And in terms of open ocean, basically do everything we can to reduce our CO2 levels um, to the sort of targets that were, were set in Paris. You know, phytoplankton or, or algae generally are often thought of as 
being, oh, yeah, just a nuisance scum. You know, they get into our swimming pools and make it look untidy and, and sometimes make them, the, you know, a bit smelly. But actually, algae are, are, are really, really important um, component of all aquatic ecosystems. They're terribly important in terms of primary production uh, across the globe and to our own lives as, as much as they are to... Um, to fish and other things that are feeding on them. Well, thanks um, very much for appearing on the show. You're very welcome, Corey. Nice to talk to you. That was Dr John Beardle from Monash University. We also heard from Dr Martino Malerba. If you missed some of today's show, don't forget that our podcast can be downloaded at 3cr.org.au slash earthmatters. Earthmatters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in getting this program out to you. Earth Matters was produced in the studios at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Victoria, on the Kulin Nation. Our contact phone is 0394198377, and our email address is earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for today, but we'll be back again next week. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to 3cr.org.au.